Yeah, we now have a quorum, so I'm going to open the meeting. Okay. Do we have any public comment? We don't. Can I call roll? Please. As soon as my pen works, sorry. Um, Trustee Alvarado? Here. Trustee Banerjee is absent. Trustee Charland is absent. Trustee Shequin? Here. Trustee DeVries? Here. And Trustee Peterson? Here. We do have a quorum. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, first action item is the approval of the minutes. I move approval. Second. All those approved. Aye. 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 Uh, information items, finance report. Okay. So we're going to just go through some uh, November highlights and then spend some time talking about our forecast for the rest of this year and um, a little bit more in depth for the 12 month roll. I think we might have some questions. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Um, so for the volume highlights um, for December, our inpatient activity continues to be strong in December. Um, outpatient activity was below budget, though. Um, acute patient days were 1.4% over budget for the month, 4.7% uh, year-to-date, and 4% above prior year. So we continue to see that. Um, those increased patient days. Our acute discharges, however, were below budget for the month, and so now they're actually um, slightly under year-to-date, and our, continue, our average length of stays continue to be over budget. Our post-acute days were slightly under budget um, for the month, However, um, later we found out that there were some um, bedable days that hadn't been adjusted, so we were actually slightly above budget um, for the month. Um, it's just not reflected here. Um, and then year-to-date, acute uh, post-acute days were 1.7% um, above budget and 3.1% above the prior year. Our clinic visits were 10.9% below budget for the month. Um, December had the same number of clinic days as the prior year, so this was the actual uh, comparable month to month. Um, so that there's not something funky about the budget um, for the month. And so clinic visits were actually 4.1% um, below budget year to date, and they're actually 0.6% below prior year. Emergency room visits continue to be below budget and below prior year. Um, the physician work RVUs were uh, below budget in December, but they continue to be above budget year-to-date and significantly above the prior year. So on a, from an overall perspective, um, as in the last few months, you know, net patient services uh, revenue is under budget, and it's, again, it's still consistent with the $27 to $29 million um, shortfall that we had projected. Our supplemental revenues were under by $1.6 million. Um, I'll talk a little bit about um, more about that in a minute. The December expenses were under budget more than enough to fully offset the revenue shortfall. Um, expenses were under $4.4 million um, compared to revenues being under by $3.9 our net operating income was about half a million dollars over budget for the month. Um, and without the capital cost transfer adjustment um, that was made in September, our year-to-date net operating income would be about uh, $200,000 above budget year-to-date. And then overall, our net income is over budget $1.5 million for the month and then $6.4 million year-to-date, and that's due to the, the long-term portion of the pension expense. And again, that, that can always change it. At audit, you never know until we get the actuarial reports. 
Um, so the revenue highlights, so here's just a closer look at the revenues that we you know, just discussed. Um, the year-to-date gross patient services revenues, were be they're below budget in December. Um, that's mainly due to um, the outpatient activity, but overall it's 6.1% above the prior year. Um, and then while under budget by $13 million, the net patient services revenue is still 4.5% four, four above prior year. Our collection percentage is 0.2% under the prior year, and that's mostly due to the overall increases in the charges of 2.4%, you know, that charge increase. Um, the supplemental revenues were under budget by $1.6 million. And so this is a, a, it's a combination of two things. We had a positive $800,000 um, from Medi-Cal Medi Managed Care Incentive payments that we received um, from uh, the 2017 program. Um, we don't accrue that because we don't know if we're actually going to earn them. So um, those were booked when they were received. And then we took a $2.5 million um, reduction in the year-to-date um, Medi-Cal Managed Care Graduate medica Medical Education Accrual. And that, while that program still has not been approved, um, it is moving through the process. Um, it actually, it's been through the review at the local CMS um, Region 9 offices, and now it's moving through Baltimore. Um, you know, CAPH is pretty um, uh, confident that this is going to go through. However, the program is much smaller in size than we had anticipated. So we have $14 million in the budget for fiscal year 19. Um, if it's approved at the current estimates, it's going to be about $4 million a year. Um, in fiscal year 19, however, because it was effective January of 2017, we will get two and a half years worth. So that'll put us at about $10 million um, for this first period. So that's what we've reduced, what we've been booking down to that $10 million mark. So if uh, if we, if it's approved, we should be, you know, fine in what we're booking and what we're projecting. Um, but next year, there's going to be an issue. <laughs> right. Okay. Part of the forecast. Yes. Um, in December, we also were able to book an additional two million dollars um, uh, for FQHC reconciliation for fiscal year 18. That's showing up in net patient services revenue, so that helps offset this adjustment that we did for the GME program. Um, I also want to mention that um, we did a mid-year adjustment to our accounts receivable allowances. As you know, we've been booking based on the income statement approach, and we're booking net revenue based on the actual services provided. Um, and we've been watching the allowances, but we did an actual true up to make sure that we were all in line from a balance sheet perspective at the end of December. And I'm happy to report that we only had to make a $153,000 adjustment um, after six months. Um, there were some swings between the different AR accounts, but overall, um, from a consolidated basis, it was $153,000. So things are looking good there. Okay. Um, the expense highlights. Um, for the month of December, FTEs were under budget by 301 FTEs, or 6.6% in December. Total labor expenses, including benefits, were $2.5 million, or 4% under budget. 
the year-to-date variance on the FTEs was 189 FTEs, and it was four, the FTEs were under budget 4.2% compared to 2.9% in expense. Um, the expense was under budget by $10.5 million. Our worked hours per adjusted patient day were below budget and below prior year, which is great. Um, from the other expenses, only supplies were over budget for the month. Um, medical supplies were over mostly in, in surgery, cardiac cath, and emergency room. The um, materials and supplies, um, the biggest variance there were in cleaning supplies. Um, management continues to do uh, work on benchmarking and expense management. So you can see they're doing a great job, able to stay um, below budget and expenses to offset our revenue issues. And I just want to make a, a note on this slide. Um, salary and wages um, year-to-date have averaged 1.4% below budget. Um, and so that's the assumption that I have used to uh, continue um, the projection for the year. I've assumed that the rest of the year that we're going to continue to stay about 1.4% uh, below budget. And, you know, while FTEs have been under, we've been having to staff, you know, backfilling with overtime and things like that. So that's why we see a difference in the expense versus how much the, the FTEs are under. So hopefully as some of those key positions do get filled, we'll be able to reduce the overtime expense and still stay within that 1.4%. Um, for the balance sheet, you know, a couple things. While, while net AR days have dropped, gross AR days have increased a little bit, um, and we're working to address our um, EBU billing errors so that we can keep the bills going out. We're, we're trying to make sure that we're in the best possible situation in terms of accounts receivable when we transition over to Sapphire because we, we know there's going to be some delays in, in cash at that point in time. Um, days and accounts payable have, are still looking good at 32.7. Um, and we continue to be compliant um, with the terms of our uh, net negative balance. Um, and we expect to be compliant by the end of the year. And this, I just want to say this graph here, we show kind of an uptick um, in our net negative balance towards the end of the year. And one of the things that we were trying to make sure is we, we never know the timing of when the state's going to ask for um, you know, us to repay some of these outstanding waiver liabilities and stuff. And we're, we're in the process of settling some of the dish things. So we wanted to make sure if we had to pay back, like we had to pay back the FQ or we had to pay back um, you know, some of the years that we owe money for DISH, we wanted to make sure that we would still stay compliant with the net negative balance. So this is kind of a worst case scenario. Okay. They expect uh, immediate payment? <laughs> Once they do actually issue a settlement, I mean, you, you, you're expected that you, ha you have to pay it, um, although you can potentially do some kind of payment arrangements, but we wanted to just make sure that if they did ask for it, that we be okay. Right. Are we impacted also by when we get reimbursed? I remember two years ago, but that was two years ago, correct? Yeah. Two, uh, two years and a, and a year after that, those were the AB85 payments that we were, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the, um, um, the, MC the cost, MC cost right. payments, those big $60 to $80 million payments that we were taking. It actually about. almost, well, almost had us at an issue. We had to, we had to. We love not needing it, but we but put it in place because we were right. that close. Yeah. And we have, we also, we kind of plan out like when we expect to get those 
payments for the various IGT funded um, programs. So for example, the, um, the QIP and the EPP, like we, we still haven't gotten anything for fiscal year 18. We're, you know, so we, we're accruing, we've accrued 18, we're accruing 19, and we probably won't even get paid for the first half of 18 on the EPP till almost the end of 19. So we've had to, you know, kind of plan that out in, in our um, cash flow as well. Well, maybe repayment should mirror payment. <laughs> <laughs> The state does try and do some of that. Um, safety net financing kind of tries to work like with when we're going to have, like a lot of times we have to pay huge, um, uh, especially at the beginning of the year when for the GPP, we have to put in the first quarter and then we also have to put in the second quarter with those big IGTs and then there'll be um, sometimes the rate range at the same time and so they try and and schedule them um, as best as possible, but sometimes it's hard. Um, and then as I have the last meeting, the last couple of meetings, I, I want to take a minute to acknowledge patient financial services for the great work that they are doing in collecting cash. Um, and December here, while slightly sl lower than the prior years, December, I mean, overall you can see that um, the amount of cash that we've collected um, this fiscal year to date is way more than um, the prior fiscal year to date. And, and the variance, the different, the increase is much more than our increase in net patient services revenue. So they're really doing a great job in, um, in collecting. So the forecasts. Um, is that still trending? Is it the, the improvement? Are we sort of maximized? Uh, um, they're they're doing a good job at trying to keep it timely and, and collecting. So they're both collect, keeping current and then collecting, you know, prior prior year, you know, accounts receivable. Um, Is there one that to actually increase the rate of return even more? We're trying to get as much um, cleaned up and caught up again so that we can be in the best position for the transition to the new system um, and so because we're going to have to basically be outsourcing a bunch of our old, older accounts receivables so that everybody can focus on the new system um, and the, the companies that will, you know, will be taking those old accounts receivables they're not going to be working the EBUs and the charger work lists and all that kind of stuff so we've got to get that stuff cleaned up so that we can get that cleaned up, build, and hopefully collected before we ever even have to transition it out. So, so we'll have to watch cash collection is actually patient. Patient. This is patient, not the yes. insurance and the billing and so on. Oh, no, no it's, it's, all it's all of it. It's all, all, all cash, um, whether it's from the patients or insurance. Or the payers, so yeah. denials and all of that. Yep. So here, these are the assumptions that are in the, the, the current year projection for fiscal year 19. Um, again, you know, the, the originals, it's based on the budget, and then we make adjustments to the budgeted numbers to fit what we see. Um, we've increased um, gross inpatient and, and physician revenues based on what we've been seeing. Um, the net patient services collection percentage, you know, is, is what we've been, you know, seeing and collecting. Um, we've 
uh, adjusted some of the waiver and supplemental revenues like the GME and things that I've, I've, um, I've mentioned um, based on our interim review. The salaries, um, we're using that 1.4%, which would cover, you know, normal vacancies, reduced overtime, benchmarking, and, and unfilled positions, anything that we um, have been doing so far to date. Um, benefits, um, obviously they change with the salaries, and then we're also assuming that we're going to have lower workers' comp than had been budgeted. For the rest of the year, we anticipate an additional $2 million from budget on purchase services. Um, supplies, repairs, maintenance um, are expected to be at budget by year end, and um, other ANG we've reduced an additional million dollars um, from budget for the rest of the of the rest of the year. And this is really hard to see, but um, based on the assumptions um, and our continued expense control efforts, we believe that we're going to be basically right there, um, very close for fiscal year 18, I mean, um, I, says eight, I said 18 on here, but it's 19 budget. Um, the, uh, and these projections don't include any adjustments for that capital cost tra um, transfer because they really don't impact the EBITDA, and we'll be making those at the end of the year in June, but essentially it shouldn't, it shouldn't change um, our EBITDA numbers. So we expect that um, the EBITDA is going to be at 4.6%. Um, and if anything, right now, it would be about $131,000 under budget based on this projection. So That's the good news. Yeah, that's the good news. Moving on to the um, the twelve month rolling. Look at the time. <laughs> so, um, so obviously the twelve month rolling forecast is at a point now that's going to give you a much better idea of the challenges that AHS is going to face in fiscal year twenty. Um, the big change here is that the projection includes estimates for the impact of um, EPIC or Sapphire training in Go Live. Um, there are no assumptions in here um, having to do with the movement of rehab to San Leandro um, and the combination of San Leandro onto the Highland license because at this point we don't exactly know what's going to happen with labor and, and um, you know, so you're assuming the status quo? Yeah, we're just assuming the status quo at this point. Okay. Um, but actually we could see an improvement. We, we could see, correct. A glitch and we Correct. And actually the, the scenario that was done before showed that it would be overall a positive outcome. So hopefully if, if that, it'll be a surprise. Okay. Um, so in terms of the assumptions, so basically um, it takes our... 2019 projection, okay, and then the next uh, five months from uh, July, I says through October 19, but it's actually November 19, sorry, um, but it uses July through November actuals as a base, and then we make the adjustments for known things that are going to change. So, um, as far as the gross patient service revenue and contractuals, I assumed an increase in gross patient services of uh, 2%. 2% and essentially a 2.2% um, net patient service revenue um, increase. Um, outpatient and um, physician volume reductions are, are anticipated for the go-live 
um, because of training and, and just some you know reductions in scheduling um, associated with the go live. So I in this projection I um, I have two percent reduction in outpatient and physician um, charges in September and then ten percent in October and then going back up to 100% in um, November. The supplemental waiver revenues, um, we have uh, decreased the uh, GPP and prime to 90% of what the maximum that is available in the waiver. Now more likely, if, if, if I just did overall 90%, but we're probably because the thresholds on GPP are going to go down because the dollars go down. So we will most likely be closer to 100% on GPP, but we may be only at 80% for Prime. It's just because it, Prime is going to get harder and harder to, to meet those um, uh, targets. So the, the variance there is $21, $21 million less than the 2019 budget. Okay. So is there a relationship between the our, our ability to secure prime payments and the inefficiencies we're going to experience in the go live. Right. Do you, you see the connection I'm making? In terms of operationally the capturing those, uh, those, I mean, those indicators of, of, of performance. Right. Uh, we're going to have an efficiency drop. Maybe. Operationally, there is a correlation between you know, like cutting back on clinical services and uh, the impact that we have on the various quality metrics that are associated with that. But I don't know if it's right now we think it's it's that that particular element is uh, going to be a substantive piece of it. The bigger challenge is each year uh, the program the, the, the uh, just naturally yeah the, the, well it, the dollars ratchet down and the uh, expectations to get out the dollars ratchet it's down. Harder. yeah so it gets higher and higher yeah yeah. yeah. Can I, since we're asking, may I? I, I started. <laughs> so last year, our revenue projection was way off. Uh, so with this rolling forecast, is this assuming those repaired projections? Yeah. Well, yes, it's based on what we've been actually seeing. And this so year? Yes. Okay. Yes. Cool. So part That's of actually a really important point. It's a really important point. I make at least one right. a day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when you've got at least one. Because the last six months I've noticed, you know, a lot of clarity actually in the financial reporting. Yeah. There's it's not very stable. unexpected surprises. Uh, you know, outside of external surprises that hit us. So and one of the things we've been doing internally uh, as team is, is is working with Nancy and uh, uh, Helen and the Budget Oversight Committee is looking at uh, prior, you know, we had a long-term um, or long-range long, long forecast, uh, particularly around, you know, those of you who are here will recall um, when we approved the project uh, that looked at a five-year forecast of you know, how we would, um, right. how our operating uh, margins would look over the next couple of years. And we expect it uh, going into this year that this was going to be our tight year uh, because uh, the funding for the project is a combination of the strategic reserves, uh, philanthropy, our net operating uh, margin, as well as our net negative balance. We expect it to be, have to leverage a little bit more of that uh, this year and then uh, come down in the subsequent years. Um, the things that forecast included, not just for this year, but for the other years, that higher collection ratio. So we're now recognizing that 
in this year, which we'll also have to recognize in subsequent years. Uh, and then the other thing she's talking about about the greater clarity that we've gotten on the revenue side with respect to uh, uh, supplemental programs that you know we, we forecasted at the time with the best available knowledge. Now we have more about the fact that like the GME program is going to be less than we expected it to be. So that offset of the reduced dollars from uh, the waiver are, are not as uh, great as it would have otherwise been. Right. So, so a lot of this is, unfortunately, some things that are beyond our internal control to yeah. deal with, but we actually have to recognize it and then adjust to it. Question just on the outpatient service revenue. I just want to make sure I understand what we're looking at here since we've made the shift into capitation. Is this what we're billing on a what we would bill on a fee for service basis, or is this what we're recognizing as capitation? Remember, we only kept it the primary care uh, uh, part of it. So there's still the specialty services that are fee service based. Well, and the, the other thing is that even though we're capitated for primary care, because they're F2HCs, yeah. we still, it's, we're paid we're based on fee for service. Yeah. Right, so that's what I'm looking at with this number here. Not necessarily what we're getting for, cap like, it's not split Correct. out. Okay, because I know you have the capitation health pack split, or it's because that program is different, I understand. But so it wouldn't be two separate. Um, I guess I'm just trying to understand how, because I know that we expect a potential cash flow. There's just the effects cash flow in terms of the mini capitation, not at the end of the day, the bottom line. So I'm just wondering where we see that, or where we might see that in terms of financial statements. So the cash, the, the capitation payments are. Um, for the FQHCs are actually in that um, in the same line with the HPAC capitation. They're there, but but they they're reduced in the net patient service calculation for the FQ. So that ultimately the two added together, it's it's based on the fee for service. So it shows they're show it's shown in that line, and and it's not um, in the December. Um, or, or March when we plan to go live with um, Highland the as FQ I didn't adjust that number because it's in the um, it's in the net patient services revenue at this point so it would just be a reclass from one to another okay um, so great questions um, <laughs> So the Medi-Cal is projected at $10 million less than the fiscal year 19 budget. So between waiver and GME, it's $30 million less um, going, moving forward. Um, so the other assumptions are, you know, Major A, I assumed an increase of 2%. That's it. I know. <laughs> um, um, we moved the um, Alameda district tax back to up to the pre-election um, level. Um, as we're seeing, we've been seeing this year some uh, lower um, funds coming from them. Um, I made an assumption that the HPAC capitation would go up 1%. Typically, we've seen like an increase, but then last year they cut back um, some. Um, so hopefully we'll see an increase next year. Um, salaries have uh, are increased three and a half percent due to the the bargaining unit um, agreements that are in place. 
Um, and then also in salaries, you're going to see $5 million additional um, training expense in August and September. Um, and then additional go-live support, $4.6 million in October and $1.2 in November. These numbers are actually a little more than what had been originally presented in the TCO, um, but overall, um, you know, we had, we had funding in there for contingency, and then we're also on the capital side, we're seeing some savings um, from a cash flow basis. The TCO is the total, total cost, cost sorry. For the whole plan that came for the projection for how much the project will cost. Yeah, um, the uh, 84 EPIC staff that are capitalized um, currently, they are still capitalized in this projection um, until January 2020. Um, that's, it's usually that, that first three months when they're still building the system and doing stabilization. We're going to have to start expensing that in January, um, and that's going to be probably an additional $6 million for the rest of that, that six months. How, how, how long a period of time is it advertised over? Um, the, when they get... Uh, depreciated, it will end up being over the life of the contract for so Epic. So probably 10 years. Right. And I didn't make any adjustment um, here um, with depreciation um, as it doesn't impact the EBITDA margin, and that's basically what we're trying to look at. Um, Purchase services, the cost has increased $140,000 a month in July and August, and then $375,000 a month um, forward for the EPIC expense, um, operating expense. Then pharmaceuticals, we, based on um, the information that we got from our pharmacy director, we're expecting that um, those costs are going to go up about 4.28%. So Supply. You, you capitalized the, the EPIC's uh, system staff for the build. They can be capitalized for the build, but then once it's effectively go live, I mean, they're supposed to be, uh, it's operational, but for that first stabilization period, they're still building the system and, and working on that, so we're able to capitalize. Yeah. And on the purchase services, the, the actual cost for the service of the product um, goes into effect once we go live. So, so while we have a couple more uh, months of stabilization on the uh, staff to capitalize the cost, the cost of the project itself, or the uh, software itself, um, we, when we contracted with them, contracted to defer that cost until we actually went live, because in some contracts they start at the moment, we, they start engaging with you, uh, but we, we uh, scaled it out until we actually went live, so that's when that happens. Is that, is that right, Mark? Okay, and then um, medical supplies are expected to increase three and a half percent. And I, we didn't increase any out, um, outside medical services. Um, again, I didn't change the depreciation, and so this does not assume any budgetary cuts or changes in service. And again, it's very small to see, um, but the EBITDA margin for this 12-month period is basically zero because um, we have significant increases in cost and, and decreases in revenue that are happening. happening. Um, and I, so I want to underscore a few points about this as well. So as you recall, when the um, we've done the long-range plan, we have expected that the EBITDA margin is going to decrease right. um, uh -huh. in fiscal year 2020. 
um, when the Sapphire project was presented. Um, again, roughly $30 million in supplemental revenue is lost that we don't are not seeing any programs coming into place to backfill at this point. And I want to make a note that you know, we need to have continued advocacy um, to eliminate entirely the dish cuts or continue to push those reductions forward because that could mean, you know, $15 million to right. um, our funding. Well, we're, we're doing that. Uh, not just us, but a lot of other uh, systems throughout the state and the country that are uh, relying on this. We've been able to stave this off, what, two other times, I think, mm -hmm. uh, since mm -hmm. the ACA was implemented. And so there's a big... Uh, push up to do that again. So, but we'll see. Different administration. Well, also at the state level, we have a huge unknown with the new administration that we hope is positive. Sure. Right. Um, this also does not reflect um, the $7 million transfer out that we have to make at the end of 19 for the strategic reserve and then the transfer back. Um, the assumption here is that that's going to be more of a, a balance sheet uh, transaction, um, so we won't we don't have it reflected here. Um, we also don't have any foundation um, support revenues um, intended to offset the Sapphire uh, operating costs at this point. Um, is that because we don't have them, or the efforts underway now uh, officially? Wants, I, well, I guess it's a technical with the board and then with the committee later this month. Uh, so, yeah, we don't, right. we don't, so you don't want to know what it will be right. at this point. We expect there to be something, but we're not forecasting. Forecast that. Can you remind me, since I don't have my thing and I can't read that, um, <laughs> what, what had been our projected EBITDA for 2020? Because I know it was going down. 2.8. It was 2.8. It was 2.8. Okay, so now you're thinking it's going to go from 4.6 to zero. Well, well this, know, is this, this is for the first 12 months. months. Oh, this is for six months of the year. Yeah. So it actually gets worse. It's a roll. Yes. So without any changes going forward and costs continuing to increase, again, remember the next six months are going to have an additional $6 million from the uncapitalized, you know, staff. Um, right. You know, and and so the trend that it would be going, we would be having a negative EBITDA. Um, so, you know, this is just to give you an idea that we are, are likely to be facing a significant gap in revenue and expense um, as we put together the fiscal year 20 budget. Um, but, you know, as always, we're going to continue to look for revenue opportunities and expense uh, reductions um, to close that gap. What would an extra $12 million do? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, what would an extra $12 million do? That would get us at $1.2 in And then probably about zero instead of negative six months later, right? No problem. I mean, if you look at the, the operating yeah. line, it's hard to see, but, um, you know, July is, you know, minus two points. I mean, it, every month it's... it's so, um, instead of belaboring this, yes. this is a reason why I'm forecasting. It's yes. sort of, it's alarming. Um, let's move on and, and continue the questions in the staff's budget preparation, uh, report, okay. because I think that's really 
how we're going to end the year balanced and, uh, with some some EBITDA, hopefully. Um, okay, back to the agenda. Did, was there anything else, Nancy? No, that's it. Thank you. I should have started with, uh, I was a half over, half hour over agenda time last time. I'm going to try to keep us within <laughs> the time frame. Right? It's a personal goal, so we'll see how we do. I'll only ask three more questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to hold you. On the operational report. So I, will, uh, I will help you with uh, the time. Thank you. Uh, very quickly, I'm not going to go through all of these. It's, it's obviously part of your report, but there's a few things that I, I do want to highlight. So, again, uh, provider delivery and our population health, they continue to manage their operation very well. We're continuing to see uh, uh, great production from our physicians, and so we're managing that and we're looking at it for this coming year. Uh, ambulatory care, obviously a focus area of ours, we're continuing to see lower volumes. And so for the month, we had, uh, we had a, a dip in, in the, as compared to budget. But this is largely driven by physician recruitments that we've had some difficulties in bringing in. So when you look at the variances, you, as you can see, they're largely driven by Eastmont. 48% of the variances are kind of the Eastmont is because of a provider in dermatology that we've been able to, uh, to uh, bring on board. And then we have some uh, newer specialties also, orthopedics, that we haven't been able to bring in. And, and uh, neurosurgery and ENT, which we're looking to begin Earlier in the year, we're starting now in February. So again, physician-related recruitment, I mean, it's just you know, very challenging many times to, to manage that, but we're still working really hard to make sure that we close the gap over the next six months. The good side is that they're, they're managing their expenses very well. So the fact that we have lower volumes, if, if they weren't managing their expenses, then we really would have a problem. But uh, the fact that they're managing their expenses really well, uh, you can see it not only within all areas where they're favorable to budget, but also on those key statistics as far as uh, FDEs per clinic visit and expenses per clinic visit. The other area I want to highlight uh, is in the acute care setting. As Nancy mentioned, we do have a, a higher activity uh, in the hospitals. Uh, per year request, in one of our last meetings, we've added the case mix index, which speaks to uh, you know the higher acuity patients that we're seeing in our hospitals. And so that's resulting in a higher length of stay, which is impacting our discharges. So again, this is how all this comes together. Uh, but with all that, uh, we look at, uh, at uh, the financials, and although you would say, you would look at it and you would think that, oh, our salaries are over budget, we have a higher activity, higher volumes, we're requiring additional staff. But when you look at the key statistics, again, acute adjusted patient days, uh, FDs per occupied bed, and our expense per adjusted patient day, uh, we're doing a good job managing our resources. And then behavioral health, we're just, uh, again, we're continuing to be very busy. Uh, we're continuing to see higher acuity. Uh, but again, Dr. Tribble and her team are, are managing that operation very well. Outside of that, uh, again, just great expense management, uh, great oversight of, of the operation, flexing up and down according to volumes. And uh, the staff is doing a really, really good job. Uh, you know, the fact that we have been able to mitigate that, uh, that revenue adjustment um, is, is, I think, just commending the, the, the staff for their great work. Any questions? No? Yes, That's all I have. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And we're back to the budget. No, uh, I, can I, if I can, well, point out one additional thing, I think uh, uh, we totally agree with Louisa and, and as uh, kudos to the staff for the great work this year. One of the areas, just kind of looking at the market, uh, that, that I think we sort of stand out, and 
probably good now, but maybe suggestive of the opportunity that existed all along is in pharmaceutical spin. So pharmaceutical spin on the hospital side in particular, sometimes in the retail side uh, as well, has been an issue of, of growing alarm in the in the market in terms of it's a smaller comparative part of the budget, but uh, but one that's the rate of increases has been uh, higher uh, in terms of uh, kind of comparison to CPI or other sort of uh, market indicators. And here, thanks to some great work with our, our partners and with our uh, staff in pharmacy and our providers, uh, uh, this year has been a pretty impressive year in terms of stemming the cost or the cost increase in pharmaceutical spend. Uh, you see next year we're uh, projecting to be four and a half, which is higher than CPI, but given again what's happening in the market, a lot more contained. Uh, I think it's something just like with the DIS stuff, we're continuing to sort of uh, advocate for better controls and better opportunities for organizations to weigh in those costs, but uh, I, I attribute that success too to, to the great work that folks are doing uh, that really looks different than when I talk to my colleagues around the country, around in the state, around what their pharmaceutical spend trend might look like. So easy to get out of control there. Exactly. Yeah, largely, largely driven by, and I just highlight the point, largely driven by our, again, our great partnership with our GPO Vizion. Yeah. So that investment we made and that commitment we made back in December of the year before, uh, over the last year, I mean, we realized uh, not only we made our, our, our guaranteed savings target largely driven by pharmaceutical expense management and, and negotiations, uh, but also we're continuing those efforts now moving forward with supply management and, you know, that's what we're working towards to, to help mitigate uh, some of the, the challenges that we are forecasting for the next year. So are 330 drugs come through the group purchasing organization or is that more like the immunizations and Sorry, 340B. Uh, well, no, through the GPO, we purchase uh, a portion of our of our drugs uh, through the GPO. The, the 340B drugs don't uh, don't come through the GPO; they're separate. Okay. Um, uh, but again, it's it's the management of both, and equally with Vision leveraging their expertise in 340B, they've been able to help us also make sure that we're managing the program effectively mm -hmm. to ensure that we're maximizing those savings. Okay. Thank you. Now it, uh, we're going to talk about next year's uh, 2020 budget process and timeline. And I think it would just open us up a little bit to hear from staff about strategies to fill the gap we, we see uh, starting to be created in the, in the forecast. Mm -hmm. But let's start with the process first. Thank you. Do you, do you all know Helen? Have you met Helen? No. Oh. Hi, Helen. Hi. Um. What do you do here? Helen's <laughs> <laughs> our um, our budget director. Wonderful. Yeah. She's I awesome. do math. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she does it incredibly well. She's a very valuable resource to us. Thank you. Happy to have her. Um, I'm here to represent to you the um, 2020 uh, budget process and timeline. Um, we started with um, this is our plan to um, plan for ourselves. Um, the patient services that we have provided uh, with the quality care to our um, community here. And at the same time, we want to uh, position ourselves financially in a good position. As we face a lot of the uh, reimbursement challenge, though, that will be also the process that we need to kind of go, go through. But um, when we start with this process, uh, we start with the volume projection. Uh, what are we going to see um, in this community and the volume that we are uh, anticipate that we will be growing or anything that we see that will be a decline. 
this year we have a little difference. We involve very much with our physicians. Um, we partner with them and uh, provide them with uh, historical uh, trend information. I know this is uh, kind of small to see, but we give them, uh, provide them information like um, by DRG and group them into service lines. So it's more of a language that they they have us. Um, uh, understanding or they have been familiar with. So we provide them with a three-year uh, trending information in cases as well as in, um, in length of stay. Um, the projection that we are doing here uh, for the Rolling 19 is basically as a calendar year. So we capture calendar year 2018 so we can capture all the seasonality uh, in uh, uh, the 19. And then for projection uh, fiscal year 20, uh, we are using um, a linear regression model, uh, taking 60% of the calendar year 18 and fiscal year 18, uh, fiscal year 18, 30%, and then 10% uh, from fiscal year 17 to see what is the, the projection that we are seeing in the um, in fiscal year 20. Uh, we're also looking at our marketing data to see uh, which services that is growing in our immediate market. Um, so that can also help the physicians to kind of uh, notice um, where we will see there's a potential growth in area. So I think um, we have a good discussion with our physicians and they are very engaged in working with us uh, and give us a very good um, and valuable information in projecting our volume. Um, so, our, our, so based on this volume, we will then model our revenue, our expenses, um, and then we can kind of come to know what's our uh, net income and also um, our EBITDA margin. Um, we will um, try to develop target uh, to meet the um, committed uh, EBITDA margin. So when we present it to you sometime in May, the final budget, so we will hopefully get to that uh, uh, EBITDA margin target. Um, in terms of our timeline, uh, today is the first time that uh, we present this to you, um, our assumption, our process. Um, Next month, we'll come back with our revenue assumption, volume assumption, and all the other assumptions uh, in expenses. Uh, Nancy actually captured most of those, but we will kind of get down into more detail. So we will give you a little more detail uh, next month uh, in terms of our assumption. Um, during the month of Ma March, uh, we will also uh, roll our budget out to our manager for edit. And once that's done, that uh, we have uh, about a month uh, then we will uh, present um, our budget, and then working with our uh, physician leaders, um, the um, SBU, um, uh, CAOs, and support services to kind of uh, look at our entire budget. Uh, we are planning on presenting the uh, first draft of our budgets um, to the um, to the board on April the 26th. Um, and uh, present a um, final budget to the Finance Committee in May and seeking for uh, the full board approval in end of May. Okay. So that is our timeline. So Great. Very, any questions? Any question? mm -hmm. I yes, asked a really long one. Yes. Yeah. It's only three Yeah, hours. so you should ask a very complex one. Yeah. Uh, what's that for you? Know, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I'm assuming we're going to have to make some hard decisions based on what you're projecting. And I guess I would like to know where in this process the proposed hard decisions are revealed, uh, both internally and then to us, because I want to know what's going to show up uh, and who's going to show up and what we need to be prepared for in terms of answering that call. Because they will show up here, they'll show up the board of supervisors, uh, and it, whether it's service line cuts, staffing cuts, etc. So where will we see that? And will you write those in red? That was one question. So on the internal side of your question, so we walk through some of the pieces here. It, uh, between beginning under, after today, the February 14th, uh, the internal budget process starts with our staff. So right. we'll be rolling it out, this education on the process, how people do it, a lot of folks have done it for a number of years, know how to do it. Uh, but they will have their targets and they'll, they'll bring a budget forward. When they complete that budget, what they submit to us by uh, uh, early March, there will be some variance between what they've submitted and what the targets that we have. So we do a, a leadership retreat to talk to people about kind of priorities and what the realities are and what our uh, delta is and what the fourth process is before us to close that delta. Um, and then basically there's an iterative process that happens between all the different uh, units and leaders to get to uh, that budget. So that is the revealing, as it were, of what are those trade-offs that we're making, what are those uh, assumptions that we're making in order to close that gap, again, on the revenue side as well as on the expense side. So that's the internal part of that, that revelation. In the middle of March, you're going to get some deeper dives and some more updated numbers around further assumptions that we're doing, uh, or refining of assumptions that we're doing on the, uh, largely on the revenue side at that point. It'll be then uh, by mid-April where we clean we do our best to, to clean this up and put this forward as a budget where now we're not just looking at the operating budget, which is what comes before you for approval, but we're putting that in context of the balance sheet and then looking at our ability to remain in compliance with the net negative balance and how uh, we've been able to, uh, you know, what, what, are, what are we forecasting that amount to be uh, at the end of this year and how that's going to pan out. That's when we come to you with the draft. That's the red line for you. So that's when you will hear in very laborious detail what's in the budget, what the, you know, what the assumption, or not the assumption, and we'll tell you that, unless that's modified, and we'll be telling you what the, what the true pieces of the uh, salient points in the budget that we put together are, um, um, you know, good, bad, and ugly. Right. Uh, and then you will give us some feedback. Uh, we will then bring back to you, I should let me say, go back, one parenthetical point. We're presenting the assumptions to the Finance Committee uh, next month, or we're proposing to do that next month. Uh, we would expect, with the chair's uh, permission that as we have switched the full board sort of uh, process to have chair reports at the beginning that we will present those assumptions to the full board we'll just have the chair relay whatever element of that with staff support if you if you need that but but you to relay what was discussed in the board meeting uh, or the committee meeting as it relates to the seven points of the assumptions that we present in march uh again coming back at the end of april that's the full budget presentation let's let's just stop was there I think there's probably some hybrid of that that might work better. I, 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 I'm channeling Joe, but I think the uh, I think in a year where the budget's going to be very uh, difficult to put together mm -hmm. and it's going to um, take some cutting and slashing, yeah. potentially, yeah. Uh, it would be good to have the full board 
engage in. Am I getting that right, Joe? I think it's okay. So how that happened, I think maybe it's more of an agenda item with uh, exactly. a shared report. Mm -hmm. So then you know, what we'll do is work with you and with, with Joe and as we look at what the March agenda will be, if it's, I think it's still useful as a board to have you or, or do some context setting uh, with the with your presentation, sure. and then to whatever extent then you want to take part of your agenda to uh, to talk about that. Understanding at that point we're not talking about the actual budget itself. We're still not still being formalized, but we can at least start to telegram not, not just it's then, it's but even in this to the higher level strategy. So so I would expect even in the February uh, full board meeting now, like you'll you'll yeah. convey to the rest of the board, like, you know, there 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 is a train coming. Uh, uh, and I'll run through the room. Yeah, okay. Okay. There you go. Uh, but we'll do that. So, so whatever extent that yeah. which you, we should do that together, we can. So the question that I didn't get answered. I mean, just because I'm reserving my questions. So, so you're going to refer back to your. Well, I just want to go back. So, so it sounds like a lot's happening at this that half day retreat, March 11th and 15th. And again, at that gap discussion, um, you know, between March 15th and April, like that sounds like where you negotiate internally over what is that? Is that March 15th to April 15th that you're, and and how is that conveyed to the people who's who will be affected by those recommendations through iterative discussions? So that will be how far down will it go in the organization? Uh, it sort of depends on a, a necessity because uh, the budget discussion happens between the accountable entities. So, so the discussion is between the members of the finance team or the budget oversight committee with the managers of those areas. So maybe at the uh, CAO level or the director level or the manager level to actually have the discussions where those variances and opportunities exist. It could be up to the managers, depending on uh, uh, where he or she understands things to be, to then have conversation with staff about those things. My guess would be those conversations would be premature at that point because the budget's not approved yet. Yeah. I mean, there'd be discussions where people are understanding where we are, but it's tough to have people react to something that's not finalized. Yeah. They will do that no less. Right. But you can't, you, can't, you can't manage that level until you actually have clarity around what you're actually dealing with. All you can manage is the, or, or appreciate is the understanding that there's, there's a big opportunity here that we know now that we're, we're, we're headed towards. Such positive <laughs> it's, it's nuanced. It's different. But, uh, but no, it is, it is tough. And so again, but, but there's some stuff that we're going to do here uh, on both sides to, uh, to refine our projections. So there may be, like for example, we are, we, uh, Nancy mentioned the projections on the uh, Epic Go Live costs now are a bit higher than what we had in our TCO. Uh, that is likely to be the reality because we, we found some opportunities to refine those numbers that unfortunately mean that the cost will be greater. Uh, but we're trying to see how much that is. And so there may be some uh, um, ability to cut some of that projection uh, down. Similarly on the revenue side, you know, if we get some favorable forecast from the foundation that a We'll be able to contribute right. five or six million to this, and that's something we don't have to uh, be as concerned about. If we get a telegraph, then dish cuts might not happen. I mean, it, right. I, I mean, temporary expectations here. I don't think that's going to happen, or at least that's getting clarity in this town. But if we get those types of signals, then we, we get to a point where we get you know even further uh, clarity on what this is likely to be right. between now and when we bring it to you in, in May. 
But at the current moment, I think it's, uh, you're rightfully uh, sensing that it's, it's going to be a challenging budget, uh, a really challenging budget, unfortunately, uh, for us. And so um, uh, we would expect that the Board of Trade, where we're bringing the first presentation of the budget, will be, um, you know, it, it'll be tough. Uh, but we'd expect, obviously, that there are some, some rational um, uh, discussions around what can be, and we'll try to present a reasonable budget so we're not being overly um, uh, conservative or overly optimistic uh, um, with what we're trying to do, and then work with you to uh, make any uh, proposed or suggested uh, enhancements on that before we bring it back to you. Uh, one more time in Finance Committee as what we think will be final. You may make some suggestions again, but then uh, but by the end of May, our goal is now to uh, to have it uh, fully finalized. So, to, to build on what I think was part of Joe's question, at least multi-pronged question, um, I think part of the challenge is making sure there's a communication plan mm -hmm. to all members of the system, mm -hmm. and um, that's hard in these situations because there's a lot of moving pieces yeah. and you don't want to give information that has to be contradicted later and so forth. Um, but on the other hand, we're in a system that's gone through a lot of change in the last year. It's going through a lot of change in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would just encourage you and the leadership team to figure out how to, uh, you know, uh, get, get some general um, information to people about where, where this is going. Fair enough, and we appreciate that. Uh, it was exactly Tony smiling because we just had a water cooler uh, discussion about this exact point uh, because of some exchanges that we've been having around this. Uh, um, and so we are we're, we're thinking through this now. We'll continue to do so. I appreciate your uh, uh, advice and, and support on how we how we do that and try to balance those points that you just brought up. Can I just comment? Also, I want uh, not just an internal communication plan, but an external communication plan. Mm -hmm. It would be great if we had a clearly defined, you know, N that we need and uh, an X way of getting it that we could convey to people like the state, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, Newsom wants to support healthcare. What a perfect opportunity um, to say, hey, can you guys cover the the dish difference or something like that. It's just a legislative effort. I mean, yeah. it should be good. There's opportunities. Things love that. I mean, I just threw that one out there. It's just kind of crazy. But, um, yeah, it would just help us to articulate what's going on. The, the earlier we do it and the clearer we do it, mm -hmm. the more likely it is we could actually uh, find some, yeah. you know, we, I, I agree with and we'll, we'll work on that because uh, we do have it sort of in a, in a piecemeal fashion now, I believe, um, but we can pull it together, not just at the state and the federal level where we'll be doing a lot of this work in partnership with CABH, but, you know, just uh, obviously at the local level, we need to uh, uh, have uh, our supervisors understand the right. status of the organization as stakeholders come forward to them to say, you know, these are real problems and we want to understand what, what accountability the organization is having. Uh, understanding again that a lot of this is beyond the control of our, our, the, the organization to to control its ability to, to to influence it and for others to try to help us to solve it if there's some opportunity to do so. The, the last thing I say is, I mean, there we've done a or not last thing subject to your question, but uh, we've done as you have seen throughout the course of this year, a really. Uh, as we just talked about, a really strong job at, uh, at controlling expenses, some of which 
quite honestly, when we were forecasting over a couple of years, we, we saw some of that happening next year and needing to be able to uh, get it next year. But now we've gotten it this year and we're forecasting for it that we'll be able to continue to hold that, you know, hold that ground. But there's not a lot of new ground to cover that's not really significant in its, uh, in its sort of structural uh, element. So that's looking at, you know, uh, market-based adjustments to uh, compensations or cost structures and things like that, which is things that we have to continue to look at. And uh, I think anybody uh, holding us accountable would expect us to, uh, to, but those are really tougher squeezes to get. Uh, uh, and, and maybe not ones that we could forecast uh, a lot of opportunity coming over a 12-month period, but once you make the decision, maybe uh, you know, 18 to 24 months out. I've been able to uh, implement and realize it. Are there other questions? I, I want to commend staff for a very um, thoughtful process. Um, you obviously have started this off on the right foot. Uh, it's going to be a challenge, but uh, the sort of analysis uh, you're doing already uh, with cooperation uh, with the doctors, I think, is impressive. Um, I would also make this note that um, because we're a public hospital and we are uh, in a situation where we have public meetings and we're transparent, uh, that this is another way for people to participate in the process. Uh, people can comment at this meeting or our full board meetings uh, on uh, budget priorities and strategies to get a balanced budget. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, get my machine back on here. And I think our next report is on the marketing. Market share. Yeah, market share. That's right. Hi, welcome. Good evening. Um, uh, I'm kind of switching gears here a little bit because we're going back in time. <laughs> what the market share report really right. um, shows us is where have we been? And unfortunately, the virtue of reporting data, uh, we have data uh, current up through the end of calendar year 2017. Uh, so I'll give you a quick look to see and show you what the trends have been uh, for the past three years, um, you know, and it's current up to 2017, end of calendar year. So um, I do have a lot of slides, but uh, what I uh, hope to do today is just kind of walk you through the highlights. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to set the stage for what I'll be sharing with you. Um, what we do every year, typically we've done this for a couple of years now, is to do a demographic growth projection. So we look at Alameda County and we kind of look to see what is the growth projection um, anticipated for the next five years. And we compare that to the national projections to see how, how, we, how we stack. So um, I'll show you that slide in a minute. Then we look at a market forecast. Helen uh, attributed, uh, talked a little bit about that because that really informs us. That's looking forward. And it's kind of showing us, based on our demographic growth projections and the uh, specifics of our population, where do we expect utilization to go over the next few years? And we use that to inform us, just basically just to give us kind of a benchmark for where the opportunities might be, um, in, specifically in services. Um, then um, the market share report itself starts to delve into utilization patterns. Here, uh, we rely on the data set that we submit to OSHPOD and we in turn get back all the information from them. OSHPOD is the um, California database where we report um, our data. 
And this uh, information is specific only to inpatient services. So we don't have a significant um, 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 kind of um, market information on market share as it relates to outpatient services, so clinics and so on and so forth. We don't have that. But what we do have on the, in the outpatient arena is ED market share, and so I'll show you that as well towards the end. Um, so, um, and once we look at utilization, so we kind of get to see, you know, what's going on with services across the county in, in the inpatient space over the last year compared to the year prior to that. Then we can look to see who are the players and what's happened within our systems and who has been, you know, where has um, a share shifted. And so uh, these are the points that I'll cover. Uh, as I mentioned before, the question we ask is where do residents of Alameda County seek inpatient care? And that's the uh, kind of the basis for our inpatient market share. It does exclude, again, uh, post-acute uh, behavioral discharges. That's not included in this analysis. So it's really strictly, um, typically looking at services that are provided the inpatient space here for Alameda Health System at Highland, Alameda Hospital, and San Diego Hospital. Um, the demographic growth projection um, says that, um, say, forecasts that for Alameda County, we do anticipate a significant population demographic growth, 8%, which is almost double that of what's projected nationally. So it's, it's pretty healthy. Um, and the unemployment rate, in fact, is expected to drop just a teeny tiny bit. However, this is just a forecast, so we can take it for whatever it's worth. Um, and the national projection is uh, expected to uh, uh, increase actually just a little, little by a little amount. The graphic that you see is the map for Alameda County and the darker the shade is basically showing that there is a larger number of people that reside in those zip codes. That is all it's saying. Um, so the market snapshots, I'm, I'm kind of segueing a little bit now into the healthcare utilization data and we're looking now at a market, a market snapshot. Um, and when we look at a forecast for Alameda County to say what's going to happen to our inpatient utilization over the next five years, I've done a detailed study last year, if you recall, I presented this to the Finance Committee and to the trustees. We were expecting really a very modest growth rate of about 2%. However, the actual trends are showing otherwise. Um, if you can see the graph for uh, acute inpatient discharges, we're actually seeing a, a downward decline, just a slight bit. You can either say it's declining slightly or you can say it's being maintained flat. It's about 116,000 discharges, so it's hard to say. But it's definitely a trend that we are noticing in the inpatient space, and which is kind of um, uh, consistent with um, you know what, what we see nationally also in the healthcare space as um, services move from an inpatient to an outpatient setting, you would see some of that, and that um, um, could be explained. Now, um, when you look at within the um, inpatient utilization, what's going on between services, it actually paints a very different picture. What this slide is telling us is that, uh, you know, cardiac, uh, I'm sorry, uh, general medicine, OB, and cardiac services are the where inpatients, where inpatient care, these were the services for which uh, our patients across Alameda County sought inpatient care. Now, when you look at the three-year trends, you can see that there's been an increase in cardiac services, in thoracic 
and also in neurosurgery. So more, more are compared to the prior year, and that's the trend that you're seeing. And I've shaded those. Uh, you can see the services shaded in green. Those are where you've seen increased utilization, um, and the others where you're seeing it shaded in orange or red is where it's decreased utilization. Uh, I will uh, show you a little bit more uh, detail on the OB services, uh, and, and we'll go there in a little bit. Now, um, having um, seen that, when we look at it across pairs, we did notice that um, uh, in, in the broad buckets of pair category, uh, utilization for uh, Medicaid or Medi-Cal declined, um, uh, declined or is showing some declining trends, and there's increased utilization from private insurance, which is, uh, this is across the board. This is not just for Alameda Health System. Uh, this is for the entire market that is um, Alameda County. Okay. Now, when we look at now, we're getting into share. So we've, we've looked at utilization, and you saw, you know, where the services uh, will be more utilized or less utilized, and by pairs. Now, when we look at who is have the slice and of, of that utilization and we look at uh, our com competition, you can see that for inpatient services, um, for us, we have highlighted uh, us in yellow. Um, basically, for, as a system, our share dropped just a little bit last year for inpatient services. It also dropped for um, um, the Altabate system, uh, and Kaiser did see an increase in share. Now, this is really not necessarily apples to apples because there are services that we don't provide that they do and you know they don't provide we do, so there is, it's, it's mixed. Um, so please keep that in context as we look at the uh, share uh, numbers overall. Um, I'm gonna skip this graphic. This was basically just a visual to show us now by payer, um, it, it, and I'll just show you the first column for if we take Medi-Cal or Medicaid, it's just showing us where, who's got the play of that Medi-Cal population, and then uh, within our system, or within a system, what is that percent of that system's total? So if you took, um, let's just take Highland Hospital, 5,500 discharges, so it's a significant volume for us. We, we know that we serve the Medi-Cal population. That's our significant population we serve. And then, um, but then we can see that we also, a like system for us would be the Altabates um, uh, Center, and they also serve the Medi-Cal population. So, and then, but for Altabates itself, they also serve uh, a significantly high privately insured population. So, it's just kind of a, a complex uh, slide. It's showing as a, as a percent within ourselves and then compared to others by pair. And it's a snapshot in time, and it's 2017. Um, I was struck by how low our Medicare ratio was. <clears throat> I would have expected that to be higher. Really? Yeah, um, maybe I don't understand it all. Um, but our population's getting older, and it's a, um, are we doing a good job of bringing in seniors? It's an artifact of the... Uh, the peers who we partner with uh, uh, for So our main partner is Alameda Alliance. Got it. Mm -hmm. The Alameda Alliance doesn't have any Medicare product line. So, um, so as our patients uh, age into Medicare, they often end up either in Anthem or some other uh, Montegan Medicare. Okay. Or Kaiser. Okay. Yeah. And then you would explain. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So but just for purposes of this chart, if someone is Medi-Medi, will they be only in the Medicaid mm -hmm. number? 
That's a good question. Yes. I don't know the answer to that. I think it was Medicare because Medicare for acute services uh, would be primary, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And a, a lot of our Medicare patients are Medicare. Mm -hmm. Medicare's primary for inpatient and, and secondary for outpatient? It's, it's, it's a, it tends to be secondary, secondary for, for uh, post-acute, I think. Is yeah. Medical mm -hmm. tends to uh, be primary uh, for post-acute, I think. And then Medicare is secondary. Um, but, but as Nancy mentioned, I should say this just for further context. In public systems, um, for, uh, typically, particularly in California, Medicare is, a, is, is usually even a smaller percentage than really? what we have. Yeah. Ours is largely uh, higher because of the post acute services uh, we offer as well. Um, um, but that's not necessarily showing up here that's because there's acute, acute discharges, but there's probably some correlation because they're in their in network getting either, you know, as they, as they uh, have an acute issue, uh, those services here. But as Nancy said, I think you're earlier because they're many, many. Okay. It's notable that our San Leandro and Alameda Medicare discharges combined uh, top Highland because those are community hospitals where you do have a Medicare population that utilizes it for regular... Historically, yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah. yeah. There's, some, there's some growth potential there, right? Not necessarily, because there still is an issue of the, uh, the, the managed care piece of it. Uh, so, so it depends on kind of the model, and our model mm -hmm. has typically been because of the provider model that we have that, that the system sort of leads with the uh, plan or says uh, in community hospitals outside of Kaiser, uh, the, 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 the facility and the providers are not necessarily as uh, tightly integrated, although that's changing. Uh, and so both, both of them tend to have a healthy blend of uh, commercial and med Medicare uh, uh, patient mix uh, that, that we don't tend to have. Um, this was just a visual again to show a lot of complicated information in a simple fashion. And this was really just to show where the shift, this is 2017 compared to 2016. You're seeing all the hospitals listed on the left and that pair category where each hospital gained or lost share. Um, so you can see that, for example, Washington Hospital Fremont uh, did gain Medicaid share, gain Medicare, you know, stayed steady with the others. Um, and you can see that um, for us, we lost a little bit of Medi-Cal share compared to 2016, uh, but we did gain some share in private insurance, which is actually quite um, interesting to note. I'm going to skip this and then move to um, OB. This is our obstetrics uh, discharges. And this is our 20, um, the, the trends just to show you basically utilization for um, OB declined in the market. So against that backdrop, Highland Hospital's um, share has been consistently increasing. This is a trend that we've been noting year over year. We showcased this last year. It continues to bear effect for 2017. And it's interesting to see that there are not very many systems that are showing similar trends other than um, uh, Kaiser, um, uh, San Leandro, as well as the um, 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 uh, uh, UCSF number is very, very small uh, in terms of the large number. Um, a really high, I mean, against a backdrop of declining utilization in Alameda County, and it's also, this is also happening across other counties. It's interesting to note that we are maintaining and gaining share. That's maybe why people are looking at stealing. Right. 
Um, finally, um, switching gears and moving into the ED uh, space, and um, you know, this has been um, a question that you all have asked, and we've been looking at internally as well, because we have seen declining ED uh, volumes across our campuses. And uh, in this case, for 2017, um, actually the utilization for ED did show a significant increase in Alameda County. Now, um, um, but, uh, but when we look at uh, Alameda Health System, along with many other systems, we are seeing declining utilization of basically declining um, a share. Um, and uh, I think the only couple of facilities uh, are, are seeing increases, which is uh, the Kaiser facility, which is in uh, San Leandro. Um, I believe, and then um, um, and then the one in um, Fremont. So this uh, this is something we're again digging a little deeper to understand uh, if there is uh, something going on uh, with the urgent care landscape and or you know um, um, volumes um, um, uh, specifically between the levels of care that uh, the, uh, people come in to seek um, uh, in in the ED and trying to understand that a little better. So um, that's really all I have. Great questions. Joe, you have two more, I think. Let's move on before you ask. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So you opened yourself up to that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Great, thank you so much for that report. Uh, it was, I found it fascinating. Really interesting. Uh, let's go on to South County. Behavioral Health Care Partnership. Now we had move, uh, move into the realm of fantasy. Yes. Yes. Fantastic fantasy um, So with that context, I, I'll give a little background. Um, as you're probably already aware, uh, the as uh, executive uh, leadership CEO, of our CEO, some time ago about um, really addressing the need in South County. As folks are aware, the limited needs that are, are clinics or services provided by Alameda County, yet nevertheless, uh, Washington Hospital receives a lot of patient uh, contacts. But then actually is um, a significant amount appears to be behavioral health patients. So that was the zeitgeist behind this. And as a result, for the last year and a half, um, actually no, since February 13th, uh, 2017, I remember that was my first day of here. Um, we began the conversations and with Alameda uh, Health System as well as Washington Hospital around that expansion, potential expansion. So this is a recap. Um, as uh, Rebecca said, our goal is to make life, uh, make this be realized, but we will get through some processes and look for uh, potential growth in the future. So this proposal, again, as I mentioned before, developed out of the South County need and initially presented to us as a desire to decompress the ED in light of the uh, uh, patients presenting to their EDs on a cyclical basis, many of which were not appropriate to be referred to John Joy, but clearly had an acute level of need that wasn't being addressed in that area. 
This was the initial demand analysis that we received from um, Washington Health, excuse me, um, Washington Hospital. And again, that's 2,400 patients a year. Now, this is, doesn't mean that these individuals aren't accessing services elsewhere through the county. So at the most acute time, this is where they're presenting. And um, this, again, gives it an, an average uh, picture of in terms of that. One of the most important features to look at is, again, the presence of anxiety, uh, alcohol, major depressive disorder, some of the mild to moderate type presentations, as well as more significant and clinical presentations. But they aren't all county patients, but they certainly represent a mixture of what we would see in um, South County. As we looked at it, we thought we would uh, develop a, a phased approach in terms of what we would look at. So if you see in the far corner, that's the Washington Hospital ED, and the goal was to look at what the community was presenting at the ED initially and provide a warm handoff from the ED and or as uh, what patients present. What we estimated, so again, if you look at the data that we initially presented, uh, this is if we didn't tell anyone of the service, so we, there's no way to know necessarily what the volumes will be. We anticipate if you, if you built it, they will come because there's very limited resources in that area. Uh, but the major elements that are, were critical is we thought five days a week, uh, 10 hours a day, 24-hour limited on-call after hour services. And again, they certainly looked at their data trends in terms of when utilization occurred, so we tried to build a model that would support that. Uh, we talked about a full-time full uh, psychiatrist and the need to support both their adult population and a small uh, group of adolescent and young people that were beginning to increasingly seek services there. The major components that we deduce based on the data they provided is the need for group therapy, individual counseling, case management, and psychiatric management. Not necessarily in that order, um, but the main thing we, we thought was really critically important is to provide a doorway that would not necessarily end up consuming health care, and it's mutually beneficial because obviously if they can't be addressed there, they are transferred to, to John George, and even if they're only pseudo- um, in need of acute psychiatric help, they're there and uh, consuming resources that others might otherwise uh, need. So, as I said, this became a dream. Did you see where that would be? Yes. That little house? The little house. <laughs> <laughs> Um, actually, uh, literally across the street from uh, Washington Hospital, they had several different potential opportunities, and again, as time progresses, it may evolve, but they had their own uh, freestanding building that they were willing to provide for this opportunity, uh, free of charge, essentially. I know. <laughs> From Washington West? Um, the large building? The, the, the large main building, it's, it's King yeah. Corner, if, if you're on the other side of the street. The yeah, well, and that's the other side. This was exactly on the same street at Main Street. Now I forget the name of the street. Civic. Um, it's the larger street. Oh, um, that's Maui. Maui, yes. Maui. So it's off Maui, down to, in a small uh, clinic area. Oh, uh, okay. Um, but literally, we even talked about transport. It's just a prime area. It's near enough to buy near the bridge, near where the other services are. So that's where it would be located. But again, as we'll talk about it later, but we even talked about potential for growth. So Washington also has other resources at their disposal and would cost it in potentially having to move again if uh, need increases and things like that. So we tried to talk about a lot of factors. The next slide is a more of a drill down on, again, what we began to look at in terms of the data we received. 
Uh, one of the major pieces that we deduced with the care coordination and linkage, both with uh, Washington Hospital and quite frankly with the county, because some of those patients may present a need to be referred to county in current structure. You, you cannot access county services unless you're a county patient and or if you access access, which is for lack of a better term, call line, which can mean um, some weight. So in the meantime, again, that's the issue for um, Washington Health System. For those patients, they're not able to accommodate them. They go back to the ED. Or for the mild to moderate patients, they're very limited resources in that area. One of the things that, again, came out large was the outpatient triage and assessment. And that's when we talk about the drop-in or the warm handoff. So this is not necessarily an emergency room, but it's a drop-in crisis-based service line that, again, the main conduit initially would have been the referrals from uh, Washington Hospital. And again, some of the other treatment modalities that I previously referenced um, based on the patient population and what's just standard practice for other clinics and potentially demographic needs in that county, we thought that this would be a very um, comprehensive model. The limited on-call 24-hour uh, services, I just want to unpack that a little bit. The goal, uh, we thought, was to enable there to be a quick decision and follow-up with that patient, not necessarily in person, but oftentimes it literally is just there's a presentation and there's a need and how do I get that need met. And oftentimes we're finding that both the John George and the EDs that patients will present wherever they can. They don't really care who can help them. So the thought behind this is because uh, the, the hour after hours may not necessarily be robust and it didn't seem fiscally prudent to staff it 24 hours a day. And this can certainly provide some linkage. And quite frankly, unlike our acute uh, partners, uh, behavioral health doesn't occur 24 hours a day in terms of services, except for the acute settings and the crisis settings. Everything else pretty much closes, which again creates the compact, uh, the, the EDs are waiting on board, boarding and so forth, but that's just uh, what uh, behavioral health looks like, unfortunately, or just uh, logistically. So again, this just summarizes some of the things that I talked about. And initially, in our discussions for the last two years, uh, year and a half, two years, we've been talking about the ability to scale up and down. As is mentioned before, again, we're talking about mild to moderate patients, but the presumption is, and based on their reports, we also have potential patients that are linked to the county. Um, again, this is a community-based brief service model. This is not a, a design that would be for outpatient indefinite. Uh, not only is it not fiscally prudent, but it doesn't make sense for the need. We're finding that most of these individuals just need to be connected and serviced and supported so that they can basically continue on the way. Um, one of the other things that we talked about is uh, therapists having a mix of master, master's and doctorate degree, matched appropriate based on that. And again, some of our clinics may have master level, uh, but, but we're thinking uh, a mix based on acuity would be a little more prudent and make a little more sense in terms of that. Again, as mentioned before, um, this, the, uh, a request that really came up a lot was the need for a psychiatrist, a full-time psychiatrist. And I, and I caveat that by saying what, we, um, what is requested oftentimes isn't maybe what clinically is most helpful. What we were thinking is a model that really protects the psychiatrics services and time so that the individual is, is immediately assessed by a licensed practitioner, which could be master's or doctorate level, and clearly if they need medication evaluation treatment, then they would be seen by a psychiatrist. That way the psychiatrist is not doing case management, they're not doing the full probation, they're literally in there to do that support. 
unnecessary potentially consultation with medication or initiation, depending on the meaning. I am going to defer um, on my colleague, my wise colleague, Swari, uh, to Wallace for the red. Yes, I get to do the uh, very depressing slide. <laughs> and, and frankly, you know, this was a significant effort, and kudos to Dr. Tribble and her team, uh, because really there was a significant excitement and engagement on both ends. And it was really unfortunate when we pulled a pro forma together that this was, it was kind of a mood dampening uh, number to look at, but this is what it was, and so we had to present this, and, um, and that's where, you know, the project is currently now trying to see where the funding opportunities can be. Um, so basically what we did was we took the information based on the program that Dr. Tribble and the team developed along with Washington Hospital, and we modeled it on our expenses to see what, the, what, this, what would this actually look like. And, uh, you know, this is a challenging pair population, um, and because of that, there's not a significant revenue stream. So when we look at the pure mix based on what Washington Hospital shared with us, um, really uh, the bottom line is that the uh, expenses exceed the revenues significantly. Mm -hmm. And there isn't a model necessarily that, you know, if we increase volume that we're going to break even. That's not the model. It's, it is, it's going to lose money. And this is the population and this is the uh, service that's needed for that population. So the more we serve, the more money we lose. Potentially, yes. This is because we, is a lower met share of Medi-Cal in that system, or? Um, our projections, if I recollect, um, it, 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 it did have, a, the, the real population is Medi-Cal, some Medicare, and there's also a commercial population. The way we model that is that we, for us to get those contracts, take a significant amount of time and effort, so we put that uh, kind of uh, ramp, up, ramp up time needed potentially to get those contracts and we use the rates that we currently get into the model to project what the revenues might be. The Medi-Cal patients would be at the FQ rate because this is still considered in the scope of primary care. This is not an FQ service. Would not be. No. So, we, no. so we would not be looking, so we're talking mild to moderate, which is considered part of primary care. So we're not looking to a primary care with behavioral hybrid model. We're really looking at a fee-for-service. Correct. That's And it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think out of the duo we talked about the potential benefits of establishing an, uh, um, that kind of model. The one challenge to that is because Washington has expanded and they have their own types of services. So without really knowing the actual demographics and what the patient population looks like, it's a very high cost to bring in an FQ, establish it with very low patient penetration rates because we just don't know what that's like because all of the data is literally based on or health patients presenting to the ED. Um, what we do know, and this is pure extrapolation from uh, previous life, is that um, many of the population in South County represent typically higher demographic rates. Well, um, Medi-Cal is only a slight portion. Um, many of the ones who are privately insured don't typically access county or other outpatient services. So there is the potential to establish this and potentially um, anticipate higher revenues based on private insurance and those that by word of mouth. There's some cultural barriers that most will not seek services through the county, but a freestanding clinic that is in the community might be attracting those populations too. So, um, but you're right, we, we actually did consider the FQ possibility. So, so how does the uh, 2,400 clients end up being 50,000 
practice, etc. Well, that's a good question. So um, a client, and I'll defer to Karen here, we did a detailed modeling on what kind of uh, visits they would need. So they would be seen, need, be, need to be seen once by a psychiatrist at the outset, followed by a licensed um, um, a therapist. Um, at 11 or 12 visits, if I recollect, then followed by group groups. So we modeled all those things at the rates that they're uh, reimbursed, and, and that's why you're seeing for the 2,400 or so visits or, or patients, you're expected to see this clinic would, would be expected to see through its um, uh, through its program about uh, the uh, 50,000 or so visits. And, and on the revenue side, are you assuming that the Medi-Cal population is going to be shorter than Medi-Cal funded through the county? or? We anticipate there will be a, a small portion, and so the model we hope to link them with the county because then they would be responsible for the match. And in, in, in actuality, that's one of the reasons we didn't initially approach the county, knowing that they would prefer data um, because they would have to put the match up for any short-term medical patients. But we anticipate there will be some because based on the data they're providing and uh, the, the level of diagnosis and the chronicity, we think some are presenting to their ED. Um, the, the other piece I'd like to mention to further add on to what Ishwari was saying about the visits. Uh, in a Medi-Cal model, obviously you can bill for not just an encounter-based service. So, for example, a person may be concurrently getting case management services somewhere else. So they may be at home, you can be billing and charging for those calls as well as the shared visits and the group visits. Um, because the main goal of this program is not to provide the services, it's to provide a lot of services up front to link them to ongoing services. Mm -hmm. And so ordinarily you would see a titration down of maybe every other week, every few weeks, once a month, and, and looking at that, this model doesn't um, hold on to patients for that long. It really provides a lot of different types of services, different uh, service types, prepare professionals, even outreach and community health workers to get them linked to wherever they're needing to get to, and then um, discontinue the service. So I guess I just, I'm trying to really understand the landscape here. If Washington is seeing ED visits for mild to moderate behavioral conditions, what do we know about um, the capacity of primary care in that area to handle mild to moderate? Are we talking about people who are not firmly linked to, prim to primary care and really need primary care and behavioral services? Because to me, if there's nothing to link to, then, then um, you know, I think you'd want to know that piece. You were, you were a bird on the wall on the shoulder when we were in those meetings. Um, um, I was trying to think of something nice to say. A pink in the air? You, well, okay. You um, yes, um, one of the things that, uh, again, this is more organic that their social work team and others are telling us is that a lot of the clinical needs just need to be packaged up. So, for example, they may um, be out of their medications, you know, although social work used to be available, that's not available, and it's in Fremont, there is nowhere else. The county does, and there are, um, the bless you, primary care clinics in that area, and even AHS, I believe, has some resources. The problem is, from what the information they're giving us, is the patients are just too um, not managed yet enough to get there. So they're in between mild to moderate, almost, and moderate to severe. So even though they may present and have that issue, they just keep coming back because they need a little more stabilization that they're not getting. And from the wait time that they're taking to be, to go to the primary care physician or CAFQ, 
it takes too long, and so they just cycle back to get the needs met. So that's why there's a, a again, from what they're reporting, there is a limited resource, and optimally having an integrated system of care would be wonderful, but it, it is a, even more of a risk based on the volumes that we're not anticipating, or we don't know about at this point. But, and so based on all that, I guess I would just say, like looking at whether there, if, if there's a demand and a need for it to be a primary, uh, uh, integrated primary, primary care behavioral health model um, is, we'd be able to build FQ. And I think that the staffing model could be more cost-effective because, sure. I mean, primary care docs are diagnosing depression, anxiety, and PTSD all day long. Right. And it, well, although you want a psychiatrist as a, as a, as a consult, um, yeah, having that be the, the only model when the problem might be that there's not a primary care capacity in that area. Um, I just, yeah. It's an excellent point. So I, I will share with you, uh, this is, so, so you know in South County, our, our only primary care geographic footprint is at the Newark Clinic, which is quite a ways away from this site. Um, uh, we have heard for quite some time, actually, uh, the medical director there will tell you that he told my predecessor several years ago <laughs> that the Newark site is increasingly becoming uh, geographically challenging for uh, the patient population, many of which are quite loyal to the clinic to go to. So uh, part of our long-term uh, sort of analysis has been whether we should actually move um, the uh, Newark Clinic. Uh, we actually uh, spec'd out a couple of locations as we drove around the uh, Fremont area, uh, one of which is further up from uh, Washington. Uh, so. You know, there's just there's some some larger sort of uh, capital challenges for us to, to explore that at this point. But I think even to this point, we we're considering how how best to we appreciate Washington reach out, uh, reaching out not just to talk to us about this, but also being willing to to put some skin in the game as it were to say you know we have some we have some footprint that could actually accommodate this. Um, um, they didn't necessarily express the uh, willingness at that point to having larger footprint for us to think about you know broader. Uh, 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 services, uh, at least now, uh, and beyond the context of the uh, behavioral health need. Uh, so, so I think actually Nancy and I were sidebar too. That maybe I'll, I'll just say at this point, well, uh, as as George said, we we are not you know we're not dropping this as a prospect. We would love the opportunity to partner with them on this as well as look at uh, some of the things we can do on the uh, primary care side. Um, we just need to continue to be creative, and uh, this was, as you were, some of you will recall, um, uh, the, the impetus for this, as requested by the chair, came from in December, you know, Supervisor Haggard and I hearing that we were in a problem where we heard that you know, we weren't moving forward because we were going to lose money, and he, his rather national challenge was, well, we lose money on everything, why would this be uh, something, why would that be an impediment to doing this now? Uh, it's not our try here, but exactly. <laughs> and I will say to you, as I said to him that day, particularly now that you see the context of uh, the future that uh, that we see ahead of us, our goal here, as we said to Washington, was we're very appreciative of the uh, the, uh, the facility and the, uh, the help in that respect. We're not trying to make money per se; that's not our charge uh, per se. But but we it, but it's tough to forecast a situation where we are, we know we would lose even more money. We're not a foundation. We don't have that luxury. Yeah. So so we both left it at let's try to keep thinking about this. Um, and this is this came after a couple of iterations of, of scaling back. It, it, it wasn't it wasn't even this favorable before. Um, in terms of looking at the scale of services. I read this and I immediately thought 
Well, this uh, is a way to describe the challenge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, just a little painting of a picture. Yeah. Um, you know, I have the same question about primary care. And uh, as you know, I live and work in this community yes. that we're talking about. Uh, so I'd be glad to help staff in any way. I, I also do land development, so uh, so I, I know a lot of property in that area. Okay. I think maybe this is a bridge that's halfway. I agree. That really it won't work uh, minimized, that it only work with the last thing you reported, which is maybe we need to look at our FQ, our total presence in the area. Mm -hmm. The FQ, the primary care they're already providing, look at all the business areas within that FQ uh, umbrella that we might be able to expand uh, through the, you know, a new space use and uh, uh, planning. I do think, uh, you know, uh, as we talked before the meeting, uh, we, we, we need to talk to partners mm -hmm. in, in that community already in the space. Um, I think uh, this is all about serving people uh, in the community. But that's that was, that's my take, that maybe this is just um, uh, not going to... I work in this <laughs> area of the county, and uh, often when you try to um, fit uh, non-scaled things into the space, they don't work. But when you uh, look for uh, going bigger, actually, bringing more uh, care and coverage into it, you can find a solution. So I, I, not that it's easy, No, that, but that's probably where it lies. That's certainly worthwhile, I would say. And I, I think we would very much welcome the opportunity to brainstorm with you. Uh, and, and to the extent that that needs to uh, uh, cast a broader net and we would be looking uh, uh, to partners, I think uh, we, would, we would certainly be uh, uh, welcoming of that as well. We just, the message we wanted to convey here is that uh, as we have been shared and we continue to have conversations, I, I should say parenthetically with our Washington colleagues, but also I've started conversations with healthcare services. I uh, had a sidebar with Kathleen uh, last week about uh, this, not in a lot of granular detail, but about the Delta and uh, whether there could be some um, uh, collaborative opportunity there as well. Uh, but we'd love to continue to explore this. Uh, we, we certainly um, uh, believe we have the, uh, the clinical and uh, technical expertise to deliver on this. We just need to kind of figure out how to answer. Yeah. <laughs> I have another question. So I, I, you mentioned that folks might be between the mild to moderate and the moderate to severe. So I guess the, my uh, my question is now at the whole other end of the extreme of what I was just suggesting earlier about primary care. Is the, is the need really walking crisis stabilization? unit. I mean, when you have extended hours like this, and, you know, it makes me, and, and people on that border, and they're really just, they're not quite stable. I mean, is it really walking crisis stabilization, and what does that do to this to this picture? And then I guess, you know, the flip of that, if, if what's really needed is more lower level and, and, and sort of, um, then do we really need 10 hours a day and, you know, uh, five days a week and 24-7 coverage? Excellent question. We, I think we posed that to our the Washington colleagues and about is it a CSU that you're looking at? They talked historically about their designation and maybe working with the county mm -hmm. initially as a CSU. Mm -hmm. What they described is that is not the need. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still a little insecure around that because I think there's a growing acuity that we're seeing all over the place. And so that's why I say I, I'm, I'm almost positive that whatever is built, whatever model, eventually, if we're able to get everything together, FQ will be optimal. 
um, you're going to see a higher level of utilization on the crisis line. We're just seeing an, a growing acuity. But so they, they were very clear about that piece. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying. I was looking for a place to add this. I think this is it. I, I think um, there are probably other voices that need to be in the conversation. Yes. Because uh, um, that's an interested party, Washington Hospital, and uh, they have one perspective. There are other uh, folks in the community who have a lens on the need within the community. Um, and yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I would say, you know, for us as a health system also to be, then if we're going to look at that, then we better look at it for the whole county too, not just that area. I mean, clearly it was an opportunity and a partner and, and, and property, you know, free, nice free lease and all that. But, um, but, but certainly where, where the need is great and where, you know, I, I know that there was sort of talk about we need more crisis stabilization across the county. Now we have pretty much no walk-in crisis stabilization across mm -hmm. the county. Um, and so what does that mean? You know, what's our responsibility in that? Um, and and so how, do we, how do we be used in that? Yeah. 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 yeah, so how do we be used in that, in that conversation? Because yeah. I think a, a lot of us are feeling neglect of, of that. that we can help yeah, I, it, mm -hmm. I just echo that, that this is a leadership opportunity. Um, the way this came up in a joint meeting, quite frankly, it felt like uh, we were accused of not participating. And quite frankly, I, I think staff has done a really good job of engaging this and uh, demonstrating to us how far this bridge is to, to build. But there are other opportunities in this, I think that's what we're saying here, to, to look at what need there is in the county. We still have a county that has way too much 5150 and not enough crisis response on available within the community. Maybe this is an opportunity to help with that conversation more broadly. Well, I would, I would I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Well, I would, I would just, I would hope that you'll take this proactively to Supervisor Haggerty and sit down with them, like like proactively ask for a meeting so you can go over this sure. and talk about this increased potential. Well, I would be glad to join you in that. I was, I was going to suggest that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I would, uh, I want to, I want to, um, uh, give the kudos to uh, um, Karen and her team, the Karens, and uh, Ishwari uh, for what they've done here. And I think what we hear from you is uh, very helpful. And I think to the extent that uh, we could. Uh, uh, leverage your interest and your knowledge to help us to facilitate further dialogue around a broader set of thinking, different stakeholder engagement. We, I, I, I think I'm, I'm going to feel free to, to reflect that we'd be more than happy to continue to drive this because uh, we do see it as an opportunity for us to demonstrate value to the community. Great. So we're going to have a meeting with Supervisor Haggerty. Sure, sure. I mean, we can't have a letter line. I'm sorry. I think Dr. Abelati, too, has a really uh, uh, interesting and insightful perspective on this, too. So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll follow up with you all uh, um, as you're interested in the work of us. Great. Wonderful. Oh, my apologies. I've, uh, I'm not able to stay for an hour and a half. I've no, failed. that's okay. You, you, that was the summary of the next steps in terms okay, of okay, okay. everything that was already discussed. So we're there. Perfect. We're there. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Your report. Thanks. And let's get back to our agenda. At least get out of here within two hours. Maybe we just need to move our expectations. Yes. <laughs> Does that sound right? <laughs> well, if he does, I mean, he's got no case. <laughs> I always look for guidance from Mike. It's a contract.
And we have a contract to approve. I move approval. Do I have a second? Second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Abstain? Okay. Um, issues tracking. Just a reminder, um, we asked staff to do a report on St. Andrew Hospital. That's coming next month. Assuming, you, are you still optimistic you can do that within your extremely busy household? I'm, I'm planning on it. Um, if we have to kick it, well, it's not of immediate uh, need. I do think the other issue we've asked staff to look at, uh, let's, you know, let's try to have a, about a five-minute conversation about this. Um, and this came out of, just a reminder, this came out of um, a revelation uh, from Luis that, um, about a roof, and, and then we talked about this lease, and uh, uh, then we had to, went into conversation about other uh, space use and other options we have. Well, challenges and options, and I think it was a realization on the part of some of us that it would be good to have um, some more context, so some more reporting to the committee, um, and some more uh, presentation of options and planning. Uh, I did say at least before the meeting that um, I was going to try to restrain myself and everyone else from micromanaging, because we could do that in this, but uh, I, I do think uh, I speak for other trustees, the sense that we have is that this is really fundamentally important to the future of the system, how we use space, what our decisions are around challenging leases and, and uh, challenging buildings like Alameda Hospital. Um, so uh, having more context and more planning uh, transparency with us, I think it's a goal. So other thoughts with this? What would you like to see? I don't know. I agree with everything you said. I'm not sure how we package it. Uh, Are we comfortable? I'm comfortable with just saying it's really staff and budget. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I want to speak for Luis, but I think what we'll, we'll probably likely do is just give you a kind of a, 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 a primer, if you will, on all the spaces where we operate, what the uh, sort of uh, roof is like, or, or what the what the uh, uh, lease or or own. Uh, engagement is or, or uh, 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 circumstances are, and then if there are some kind of deferred capital or major concerns that we have, we can start to call those out and obviously update it over time. Yeah, yeah, sorry, but it's on. Right, for, for next month, yeah, yeah. for next month, uh, and, and the only thing I would add to what you were saying, that you know, and I really think that the, the reason for the really the, the education conversation and you know, informing you of all these different. Uh, this is for us to also start considering options, recognizing the difficulties that we're dealing with yeah. next year. Yeah. You know, are there other space options that would be of greater value than these leases that we currently have? And so leveraging other space that may be available mm -hmm. through other partners or things of that nature, right? So those are the things that we really want to look at. Uh, but next month I will provide you with a list of, of all of our current Leases uh, that that we that we have uh -huh. um, space with you know just the key terms and conditions of each one of those leases and and then we'll at highlight at a high level and then we'll highlight where we mean where we have some concerns or where there are some potential issues and then with that information as the basis to to then start thinking about well what what should we start looking at and what what is our long range plan to then say hey look when these leases start coming up do we have other options and how can we start leveraging some of those 
maybe even in the more near future and things of that nature. So that's kind of the intent of what we're trying to talk about. And you specifically about. mentioned when this first came up, uh, Fairmont and some mm -hmm. of the uh, <laughs> options that are available there potentially. Um, so that you could add that. Well, and he, exactly now, I'll mention it again because I just love mentioning it, but it's, it's, it's you know, zone way was something that one of the supervisors yeah. mentioned yeah. Uh, as an option. Yeah. That mind. As an option, uh, and, and so recognizing that there's a lot of activity and a lot of discussion around leveraging Fairmont in a different capacity for other county programs that are very important. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. You know, then we can relocate some of that staff to a more suitable space. You know, and, and leveraging some of that uh, uh, space at own way with county. So, and again, these are some of the partnerships that we can look at, seeing how we can leverage and, and and move us in the direction that would, you know, benefit everyone. Okay. Good. Great. I think we're set. Uh, any other comments? Trustees? Okay, I'm going to close the meeting. All right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I really. Just to have our meeting.